The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Dana Boyd-Barr. She is a research professor with the Department of Environmental Health at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University in Atlanta. Prior to joining Emory University, Dr. Barr led a scientific research lab at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for 23 years. Her research involves using analytical chemistry to assess exposure to a variety of environmental toxins, an area called exposure science. She is an expert on the effects of pesticides and other toxins on prenatal development and children. I became interested in her work after hearing her on a webinar in which she described her efforts in researching a particular insecticide called chlorpyrifos. Welcome, Dr. Barr. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I wonder, how did you get interested in this area of research? What led you to be curious about how pesticides and other environmental toxins affect children? Well, I think it's partially because I have a child that's learning disabled, and I've always been interested in trying to understand some of the environmental aspects, controllable aspects, that would be related to those learning development problems that he's had. Were you living in an environment where you had exposures, do you think, when you were pregnant with him? Well, I live on old farmland, and so I know that it used to be a cotton farm, so I'm suspecting that there's residual DDP or DDE here, the legacy pesticides. Mm. And so, yeah, I think that I was in an environment where I might have had some residual legacy exposures, but also at that point in time, a lot of the current use insecticides and herbicides were used very liberally in homes and apartment buildings, and so it was pretty easy to get access and exposure to those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the use of pesticides in our country and worldwide actually really amazes me. And I saw one of the papers that you had written several years ago where you described that there are about 80,000 pesticides used worldwide, and very few of them have been studied for exposure in humans for long-term exposure. And I am also interested in not only individual pesticides, but the fact that they're never tested together, the way they appear or the way we're exposed to them in the environment, we don't test for them. So we don't really understand the synergies very well, do we? No, we really don't. It wasn't until the Food Quality Protection Act in 1996 that the EPA even considered this kind of aggregate or cumulative exposure. So we can be exposed to the same pesticides from multiple sources, multiple food crops, multiple uses. Or we can be exposed to pesticides that have similar activities of using multiple foods and environmental sources as well. And so it's not something that we've easily considered, this potential synergistic effect. We tend to 
study one chemical and one outcome at a time. And it's really not the most efficient, but today it's kind of the accepted way of doing things. Mm -hmm. What led you in particular to look at this one kind of organophosphate insecticide called chlorpyrifos? Well, chlorpyrifos is the most widely used insecticide in the U.S. And in fact, it's probably the most widely used insecticide globally. I also do a lot of research in developing countries such as Thailand, and it's one of the largest imports that they have for use in agriculture. So chlorpyrifos, along with other organophosphate pesticides, are sometimes considered junior strength nerve agents because they have the same biological mechanism in the human body. We think that lower exposures are able to alter neurodevelopment using alternative pathways. And so because of these alternative pathways, we feel like maybe the current risk assessments that we have are just not protective enough of health. Mm. Now, the manufacturer is Dow Chemical, and I'm assuming that our listeners may wonder what kinds of brand names might we see on the marketplace or on the farm that contains this particular insecticide? Are there certain product names that might be more familiar to people? Well, there are a lot of different formulations, but probably the one that's most familiar to people would be called Dursban. Mm. And it's very commonly used on a multitude of farm crops. And it's very effective, which is why it's used. And it's less susceptible to talk to um, insect tolerance than other pesticides are. So the insects actually don't become tolerant of it and then not die because they're exposed to it. They don't become tolerant, and so it's very effective. Mm. Interesting. Yes, I've heard of that. And then I also looked at some of the research that you did showing this is widely used. And from a dietitian's perspective, the message that we always get from the Produce for Better Health Foundation, for example, is don't worry about the herbicide or pesticide residues. They're very low. They're safe. Whatever amount there is safe. And if there's anything there, we can wash it off, peel it off. But I never hear a discussion about, you know, it's not just what's on our plate. It's also how children are exposed who are children of farm workers. And I know that you've looked, as you mentioned, at farm or agricultural populations, both in Thailand, abroad, and also you looked at exposure among children from in utero to age seven in California, New York, and Ohio. What did you find in both locations? So in all studies, we had pretty consistent findings across the board. We found that prenatal exposures were consistently associated with poorer neurodevelopmental scores, lower IQs, early onset of ADHD, and less attentiveness. And it's pretty consistent. These effects, we believe, are from prenatal exposures, but they manifest themselves and they continue to manifest themselves throughout childhood. Mm. And so it alters not only the neurodevelopment of the child, but also the trajectory of where they're going to be 10 years from now. Right. Yeah, I heard you discuss the issue of if you look at an individual who loses several IQ points, it's not anything that one might become concerned about until you consider it on a population-wide impact. And then you start seeing whole shifts in population downward. And what does that look like for society? So what happens is you have more people that fall into this special needs category where they require a lot more help to be successful and achieve on academic tests. 
And then you have a lot fewer people that are in this high-performing group. And so it kind of shifts the abilities of the population. It puts more burden on the healthcare system and, and on the schools and having to address the learning issues of those that have kind of been shifted downward. And there are fewer people up at the top end that can be high achievers and go on to have a lot of success. And yeah. it did mention that with chlorpyrifos, as well as with other neurotoxicants like lead, this IQ shift on an individual level, you probably wouldn't notice it in an individual. But when you start looking at the broader population, it does have huge implications. Oh, and I'm just thinking about our school budgets and how, on the one hand, it's tragic that people would not be able to reach their full potential. But also when I think about all of these children entering our school districts that are so woefully underfunded, that these are really externalized costs. So when we hear about, oh, we need to use these chemicals in order to have this cheap or affordable food system, we really aren't doing full cost accounting. That's correct. We're not evaluating the indirect costs that are associated with the use of that chemical, which would be these neurodevelopmental deficits and the costs of it. Yeah. You know, I want to go back and just mention something that you had in this article about your pilot study in Thailand, where you looked at exposures at different times of pregnancy. And it's so fascinating to me. So a first trimester exposure would most likely affect a child's or a baby's reflex development. And then during second trimester, it would increase the risk of impaired motor development in babies. And so what's right. so fascinating you know, to me is when these so precious developmental stages, how the introduction of a toxin into the baby's environment would cause specific damage later on. What makes a child so very susceptible? Well, for one thing, they have immature detoxification pathways. And so our bodies are designed to see foreign chemicals and work to try and make them more soluble so we can excrete them out of urine. A child's pathway of doing that is really not mature. It hasn't developed. So they don't have a means for detoxifying a lot of these chemicals. And the other thing is, is during pregnancy, obviously, that, you know, there are critical stages of development. During the first trimester, you have organogenesis happening, organs developing. Then you have differentiation of neurons that are occurring. And so any kind of insult during one of these critical stages can actually have a huge impact. Mm -hmm. What about on other population groups? I've heard people express concerns about if we're spraying these neurotoxins, children are the most vulnerable. What about neurodevelopment or the effects on our brains as we get older? A lot of studies have linked pesticide use or exposure to pesticides to neurodegenerative disease like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. There is a growing body of evidence that suggests during these vulnerable periods of time, so both the senior or twilight period and in this prenatal period, that there can be overwhelming impacts from these toxicant exposures. So the incidences of Parkinson's that we see in an older population, if I'm understanding you correctly, they can be linked back to exposure during childhood? Well, we don't know. We don't know. I mean, the, the studies that have been presented are looking at uh, more recent exposures 
and Parkinsonianism and degenerative disease in general. So maybe they're looking at where somebody has lived for the last 10 years and then onset of this neurodegenerative disease. We don't really have enough information to go back to childhood and try and understand what's happening in childhood that can affect you as an adult. But a lot of these birth cohort studies that we've been working on, the children are now adults. They're now in their 20s, and it represents a great opportunity to test the progression of their health and whether these early childhood or prenatal exposures are somehow linked to the development of health effects sometime later in life. Hmm. One would think that if we have sufficient data showing potential for harm to children, that we would want to get those kinds of products off the market. And if I'm understanding correctly, chlorpyrifos was disallowed for home use, but it was recently reconsidered for agricultural use. We were set to ban it, but then under our new administration, the EPA said, no, you know, we don't have enough data yet. Right. What is it going to take? You know, what does enough data look like? It's a big question. I actually ask that question daily about chlorpyrifos. I mean, we've been looking at prenatal exposures and developmental outcomes for 20 years. And to me, in a way, it's a bit ironic that we've spent 20 years studying a known neurotoxicant to prove that it's neurotoxic to humans. But the data are solid. And a lot of studies are pointing to the same outcomes. And so to me, having somebody quantify what's the preponderance of evidence is it's kind of difficult to imagine because I think that right now with the peer-reviewed literature and the studies that have come out, that there's a lot of evidence that shows that the allowable levels that we have in the U.S., for example, are probably not protective enough and that this insecticide is linked to neurodevelopmental deficits. Mm. It took several scientific panels reviewing a lot of evidence to make the recommendation to EPA that chlorpyrifos should just be eliminated entirely. Its residential uses were eliminated back in the early 2000s, and we were all set to have it totally eliminated from agriculture this year. But that decision, as you mentioned, was overturned, and I don't believe that the overturning of that decision was based on the science. Right. Let me just take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Dana Boyd-Barr. She is a research professor with the Department of Environmental Health at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University in Atlanta. Prior to joining Emory, Dr. Barr led a scientific research lab at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for 23 years. Her research involves using analytical chemistry to assess exposure to a variety of environmental toxins, an area we call exposure science. Well, I want to talk about the regulatory problems or the hoops that we have to jump through in order to change policies. And, you know, like you as a nutritionist, I would think that having enough evidence or having good, solid evidence would be enough, especially when it comes to our children's health, to ban a particular product. And I know what happens to scientists who question the data or who question the use of a particular product that happens to be profitable. Many times our science is attacked. 
Have you had that happen to you where industry officials or individuals who work for them say, you know, your research isn't good or there's too many holes in your research, we don't have solid enough data to take action? Oh, yeah. That's their primary defense Mm -hmm. against the data is to try and find the weak spots in the research. And there are going to be weak spots because no research is perfect. And then trying to say that these weak spots then basically render those findings invalid. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a valid argument because to me a lot of the weaknesses that they point out would prevent us from finding any associations at all. So the fact that we do find associations probably means that the strength of evidence is even more than what we think it is. But that's definitely a defense that has occurred during review panels. And I've even had one scientist say to me that, you know, it's nothing personal. This is just my job. And it's disheartening because you try to do good research. You try to do solid science. And knowing that their job is to try and then pick apart everything that you've done and find everything that might be wrong with it, rather than looking at the big picture of the work is disheartening. Yes. I don't know how people sleep at night I mean, we all, I think we all care about children and we usually put them first when it comes to making societal decisions, although I wonder at the end of the day if if we truly do that. But I do wonder how individuals can see this data and not question their position in terms of not banning it. Is the system so rigged and where do we make inroads so that people pay attention to the truth to protect our kids? I don't know if the system is always rigged or if if there are problems across the system. I do think that sometimes industry is allowed to have more of a voice in the process than I necessarily think that they should. For example, in some of these scientific advisory panel meetings, as a researcher that's responsible for some of this research, I'm not allowed to go there and defend my research, yet industry is allowed to go there and defend their product. And so to me, in a situation like that, it would be a much fairer, I don't want to say fight, but evaluation if you had all the parties that were involved in the research or involved in the product generation there being able to discuss this. To me, that's an unfortunate thing. So I don't think that the system is rigged per se, but I think that right now products are considered safe until somebody externally has to prove they're guilty, which is kind of, to me, the wrong mindset. We should always assume that this chemical that we're putting in the environment is harmful until we can prove it's safe, Right. which is, which is the European way of doing things. Right. But to me, that's kind of a challenge is that industry has more of a presence at the decision-making table, I think. Yeah. So you've been now both at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as well as at Emory University. What is the environment like for you as a research scientist? Did you have freedom at the CDC to pursue your research focus, or was it directed by whoever was appointed the head of the CDC at the time? I had some freedom, but yes, the large agenda items were decided by the people that were heading up the CDC or that were the people creating the budget, the legislators creating the budget. Um, What they funded, obviously, was what got researched. 
but I definitely had flexibility to choose the chemicals that I was interested in and the projects that I wanted to participate in. But a lot of that had to be vetted. You know, I couldn't just say, I want to participate in this project. And, you know, if there was concern about the appearances of it, you know, if it was, for example, with industry or with an activist group or whatever, I might not have been able to participate in that. I I do have to say, being in academia, I have a lot more research freedom. Mm. But with that comes a lot of responsibility, obviously, to choose the research teams that you want to work with wisely and to choose the projects that you want to work on fairly wisely as well. Right. Well, I'm going to provide links for our listeners that they can learn more about this particular insecticide, know where they find it. I mean, when you realize just how widespread its use is, not only on corn and soybeans, but fruit and nut trees, Brussels sprouts, cranberries, broccoli, cauliflower... These are the kinds of foods that dietitians recommend to families to protect their health. And yet, these are also the crops that are being sprayed. And some of your research, I know that you've presented in different webinars, where you've said feeding a child an organic diet really does seem to make a difference. Yeah, it does. It makes a difference on their exposure to insecticides. You can feed a child a traditional diet kind of wean them off of that, put them on an organic diet for a week, and then wean them back on their traditional diet. And you can see over that period of time that the time that they're on the organic diet, their pesticide residue body burden is quite low compared to the time when they're on the traditional diet. And in fact, those data are some of the data that EPA used in this chlorpyrifos evaluation. Wow. Well, I think it's important for each of us as consumers to be able to have that knowledge when we go to the grocery store. But I also think it's really important for us to think about people who are in our food system who we don't know, but who still touch our food, like the farm workers, for example. And you've looked at populations in California. How are those children doing that live in communities where these chemicals are used? I think one of your studies showed that for women who live Clearly, this would make sense, but if the closer they live to the agricultural land, the more likely they are to have children that are affected. What's happening to those children there? And does California have a different regulatory system with their Proposition 65? Are they more likely to ban the use of that chemical? I'm not sure about the regulatory system in California per se. They do keep the best pesticide use records of any other state. So it's much easier to kind of understand where pesticides are being used in California. What we see in, in situations where you have farmers who have children that either live on farms or live in areas close to farms, maybe they're farm workers, is that you get a lot of what's called para-occupational exposure, mm. where the parent gets exposed at work and they may have coveralls that are doused in pesticides And then when they come home and say pick up their child, they're transferring some of that dose to the child. You also see that parents in some of those situations tend to bring home some of the products that they use at work because they do work in killing pests. And a lot of these are low-income families, and so they tend to use them in their homes to get rid of cockroaches or whatever. They're no longer licensed for um, residential use. And so they're probably getting much more exposure than they would otherwise get just because they're using it at home. Because a lot of these pesticides, although they're considered environmentally non-persistent, meaning that they degrade in the environment, 
they actually stick around for a long time in your homes because they really need exposure to sunlight and water to degrade. And in your home, you don't really have all of that. And so there are some studies that have suggested that these pesticide residues can last over 20 years in homes. Wow. Well, I know that since you've been with the CDC, you've probably tracked the increase in autism that we've seen. And it's really alarming to pediatricians and really anybody in the health-related professions who are looking at these data and saying, what is going on? And I noticed the Pesticide Action Network of North America released a data sheet on this particular insecticide, and they said that they're finding links between autism and exposure of these pesticides during that gestational time. So I'm not familiar with their study, and I, I really don't study autism mm-hmm. much, but I do know that there is active research going on, in particular in California, looking right. at prenatal exposures, the whole kind of microbial environment of the body, and how that relates to autism. And so I think we will be seeing some results out on that pretty soon. And did I read that you too were looking at the microbiome in some of your research? Yes. We have an Atlanta area African-American birth cohort where we're looking at the microbiome, environmental toxicant exposures, and how they interrelate with internal metabolism as well called the metabolome. Is there anything that you can share with us right now about some of that data? Well, we're still in the early stages of this study, but we are finding that there are differences in alterations in the microbiome during pregnancy, changes in groups of bacteria, and we were trying to understand if there's kind of an interrelation now with toxicant exposure because there are multiple ways they can interact. They can, toxicants could potentially cause dysymbiosis, the microbiome could actually metabolize toxicants into something less toxic or something more toxic. And so we're currently working on those data, but we're still too early in the project to have any kind of real result. I think this is a really exciting area. I think of it as the new frontier in nutrition and health research. So I was really thrilled to see that you were going in that direction. We just have one minute left. Do you want to give our listeners a charge or one last piece of information before we have to close? Yeah, I would encourage them to contact their legislators about the lack of ban on chlorpyrifos. Right now, there is a bill in Congress to have a legislative ban of chlorpyrifos and encourage their congressmen, their representatives to vote for that bill because if we can't get EPA administrator to approve the ban, maybe we can do it in a different fashion. And is there a website where people can go for more information that you like to learn more about the legislation and the research? I would probably go to uh, the website of uh, Senator Udall from New Mexico. Okay. He's got a lot of information on that particular bill on his website. All right. Wonderful. And the research, do you have a favorite site? Or shall I direct them to your professional website? My favorite site is www.leaderlaboratory.org, which is my research group site. But there's a lot of good environmental health research going on. You can look at some of the professional society sites, the International Society of Exposure Science, the International Society of Environmental Epidemiology, and they can direct you to some of the research that's going on. But it's a, it's a growing area in, in the era where we've spent so much time 
time trying to figure out genetic bases of disease, it's, it's time that we really focus on the environmental component, which we think is a huge contributor. I and, agree. Um, not just the environment as narrowly defined, broadly defined, including diet and other stressors as well. Exactly. Well, Dr. Barr, I want to thank you so much for taking time to be my guest. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hamelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I especially want to thank my guest, Dr. Dana Boyd-Barr, research professor with the Department of Environmental Health at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University in Atlanta. Thank you so much for your research and your time today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. 